0: one of the things that we we know as christians if you've been a believer for 10 seconds that christians are not immune from trials and testings and sufferings and circumstances it just it goes with life and when you become a believer it doesn't change in fact in some ways it can actually ramp up more so because as a christian you have move from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you are no longer aligned with the familiar, uh, friendly faces of this world because you have a different master, a different king. And in Acts chapter 25 this morning, as we've been looking for some time, uh, we've seen the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is certainly one who was not... Immune from hardship and suffering. He seems to go from one issue to another as he is just wanting to fulfill and submit and promote God's gospel, promote the gospel. And as Christians, we, as we face our circumstances, we face trials and we face difficulties of various kinds, uh, it can either be frustrating or fruitful. I'll say that again. It can either be frustrating or it can be fruitful. James in chapter 1 verse 2 reminds us and says something that really kind of counteracts against what we want to believe or think when he says that when you face various trials, count it all what? Joy. That's the last thing on my mind is joy. Joy. But that's what James says, the count it all joy, because as James says, is that once the testing of your faith, it produces endurance, it produces a stick-to-itiveness, and makes our faith stronger, even though we certainly do not welcome the trials and issues that come in. And from a human perspective, we can grow impatient and frustrated as we think, what a waste of time this is why do I have to be going through this? But what we always have to keep in mind as believers and even coming to here today every lord 's day it's it 's a recalibrating our minds to see our life, our situations, family, job, everything from the perspective of God, and here we are reorienting our minds to say is what I am going through is my circumstances, my trial, if I'm looking at it just from human perspective, my human perspective, my angle, it is certainly depressing and frustrating. But if I can continue to recalibrate recal- my mind, my spirit, to say, how does my hardship, how does my trial, how does my circumstance, how can I see it from God's perspective? And so in the book of Acts and throughout Scripture, we constantly see examples of individuals that were not immune from suffering, that they saw their life in light of God's purposes. Sometimes they saw that while they were here. Sometimes they got a glimpse of it while they were, before they were with the Lord. But really, a lot of times, they never really saw how exactly everything they went through how God used that in his purposes until way after they were with the Lord. And we, we tend to view our life just right in the here and now. You know what uh, being myopic is? That's nearsightedness, myopia. I'm nearsighted physically, all right? So I can read fine without these glasses, but you're just kind of a blur uh, out there. And I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm just talking about if I take my glasses off. But we some we have a spiritual myopia where we just see what's in front of us and how it impacts us instead of saying, God, help me to see how this fits in to your big picture. How does what I am walking through, how does that fit into your purposes, not only for my life, but really the question we have to be asking is, how does this fit into your kingdom agenda? Colossians 3.2 says, that we are to set our minds on things that are what, that are above. Notice it says set your minds. That's like that's a deliberate action. Set your minds. Set, uh, calibrate. Put it put it in a in a place to where you are positioned to set your minds on things above and not on things of the earth. Well, the Apostle Paul is helpful in this, and as we kind of set up chapter twenty five. It'll sound like this beginning is kind of long, and towards the end, I'm going to give you four real short points, so don't panic in thinking, he's just got this long introduction, and then when he says, and I have four, four examples for you, don't panic that we're not going to have an intermission, because I know what will happen, you know, y'all would disappear, I, don't, I, don't, I know what y'all would do, so it's not going to be an extra long message, but there's some things that we want to just set up before we get to the application, Okay. So, in Acts chapter 25, we've been walking with the Apostle Paul for some time, and especially since chapter 21. I'm not going to go through and review that, but as we've been looking at what Paul has been going through, Paul is coming in from chapter 21, he's coming into the latter period of his life. Eventually, he will head to Rome, he will bear witness for Christ in Rome. And that will be where he is executed. Uh, it doesn't say that in the book of Acts, but uh, reliable uh, works and histories and uh, that have followed the apostles upon their death have, have all affirmed that Paul was beheaded when he was in Rome and he was executed. And so God has been leading Paul through all of these situations. And all of these situations have not always been pleasant from the chapter 21 and as he's returning to Jerusalem, he's returning back to bring money to uh, the believers there who were having hardship because as they uh, have changed alliances in Jerusalem, have gone from uh, Judaism, and now they are followers of the Messiah, Jesus, they have suffered, there's been an impact on their lives financially, their employment, all those things, and so as Paul had, had, we'd looked at all those missionary journeys where he's gone into these non-Jewish lands and he has preached the gospel, that he has gone into these places. And one of the things that he did is that these Gentiles, non-Jews, took an offering. And they received an offering so that when Paul returned back, that they could bless the church in Jerusalem and help offset the hardship. And so as Paul has come back into Jerusalem from about chapter 21 that we looked at several weeks back, is that it has just been one thing after another that has come against him. There has been mobs and there has been false accusations. Last week, you remember, he uh, was before this uh, Roman governor by the name of Felix, a Roman governor. You remember Pontius Pilate? He held that role. He was the governor of Judea. Fast forward 20-ish years and some change, and we find Felix now in that role, and so Paul was before him. Felix, uh, remember when Paul began to share with him about righteousness and judgment? The Bible says that he trembled. He There was a conviction, but no conversion. And he had uh, hoped that Paul might bribe him and give some money. He heard that Paul has a good fundraiser, and he might have friends in high places and, and have some access to money, and it says there in uh, the the Chapter we looked at last week in chapter twenty four that that he had hoped that Paul might bribe and give him some money, and so uh, he just threw Paul back into prison and kind of did the politically expedient thing, kind of just pushed it back, and let the next guy in office deal with it and so Paul is in prison for a couple of years, just waiting, doing nothing, and then a new Roman governor is appointed, and this man is named. Festus, and he is not Festus from Gunsmoke. He is uh, Festus, uh, and some of you won't even know who that is, but anyway. But Festus is the man on the scene, and he is now the Roman governor of Judea. He is in where Felix is. Felix has been recalled back to Rome. Festus is there, and apparently, this is still a big deal, this apostle Paul because one of the things that we saw with Pontius Pilate, we saw it with Felix, we've seen kind of the trend, is one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to appease, they weren't Jewish, they were Gentile Romans, they wanted to appease the Jewish powers by kind of giving in to them in order to keep peace, but it wasn't just because they were peacemakers, because one of the things that Rome was really concerned with, I say concerned with, they were obsessed with, is to make sure that the tax money kept flowing. And everybody in between had their hand grafted in a little bit. So if the tax was 20%, they made sure they jacked it up 5%. And everybody had their hand in the deal. And when there's rioting and when there's turmoil and there's pe- there's mobs and there's, you know, disharmony in the nation, money's not flowing. So it isn't because you know, there's a real benevolent attitude. They're really greedy and wanted to make sure they kept their hand in the, in the cookie jar, so to speak, and this guy named Festus, and that brings us to chapter 25, he's, a, he's a, arrived at the capital of Judea, which is in Caesarea, that's where Felix, that's where Pontius Pilate, uh, all of them uh, were headquartered in Judea, and before he uh, went to Jerusalem, he familiarized himself with the situation, and we're just going to read, it'll be on the screen, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Acts chapter 25 and then make some comments, then we're going to look at uh, some application here uh, this morning as we examine God's Word and pray for God to speak to us today. But look look with me in Acts chapter 25, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we will read through verse 12. You follow along in your Bibles, it will be on the screen if that is easier for you. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him. Remember, this has been going on for a couple of years. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Notice this, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. It was all a pretext just to get him, and they were going to plan an ambush to kill Paul. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he arrived, Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, Bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Interesting. Verse 8 Paul argued in his defense, and he said, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, against Rome, have I committed any offense. He's innocent. But Festus, notice this, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried? ...on these charges before me. But Paul said, "...I am standing before Caesar's tribunal," that's Rome, "...where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them." I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Because as you remember, Paul is, by being born in Tarsus, is a Roman citizen. You ever, you know, when you watch some of these crime shows, and they're in there, uh, you know, interrogating, and immediately when they said, I want my lawyer. And they do, well, in theory, they need to stop, and because that's it, they can't legally, and so what, he, what did he do? He said, I'm a Roman citizen. He had already said this before, and I'm taking my case to Rome. Now, remember in the big picture, what is God's design? God had already told him, you're going to go to Rome, and so there's a strategy that God has behind this, but let's just pray, and as we uh, unpack this a little bit and get uh, down to where we live, I think, uh, I hope that'll be an encouragement to you as we once again examine Paul and how he can counsel us and teach us uh, about standing in the midst of suffering. Father, we just pray and ask your blessing upon your word today. Pray that it would be a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. We pray that uh, it would encourage, especially those who were facing some difficulties, who were perhaps in situations not of their own making or their own doing, but feel pressed and feel perhaps even uh, challenged or persecuted even, to, uh, Lord, to stand and be faithful to you and even questioning, God, uh, where are you in the midst of this situation and, and are you even a- am I even able to trust you anymore uh, because I don't see how you're using this for uh, my good and, and how this is going to work out to any positive uh, in my life and how this benefits anybody Uh, Encourage us by your word, I pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Paul has been through some stuff, hasn't he? Acts from Acts chapter thirteen on, it's about primarily the Apostle Paul is at center attention, and he has been through some stuff. He's standing before these same angry people, these same angry accusers, false charges. They have no facts or. Uh, anything they can uh, bring against him. And Paul could have, I, I, just as I think about this, Paul could have impatiently thought uh, like would be quite normal. When will this all end? All I want to do, all I want to do is tell people about Jesus. And it seems like every time I step forward and begin to get some traction, it seems like there's opposition everywhere I turn. And it's and as we, as we look at this, this passage and consider some of these things, it's important for us to, hopefully, I think Paul had this, and as I said earlier, to have a big picture when we're going through stuff, when we're going through hardships, and we're going through testings, and however you want to fill in the blank, that in the big picture... God used these frustrating circumstances, not only did he use them ultimately to get Paul to the destination that the Holy Spirit had previously prophesied and told that he would use this in Paul's life. Sometimes, you know how God fulfills a purpose isn't exactly always the way we think it should be done? Of how God will open a door through the most unlikely person or situation? But God is on the move, and so Paul is going to fulfill God's purposes for his life, and he is going to eventually go to Rome where he will share the gospel with influential leaders. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it's not on the screen, but it's a reminder that we oftentimes, or not oftentimes, all the time, need to see our life, not from human perspective, because we're real good at that, But how do we see it from a spiritual perspective? How do we ask the question, God, what are you doing? Anybody ask that in the last week? God, what are you doing? How does this fit in? We need to say what what Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. and said that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. God may not give us all the in-betweens, but we need to, as believers, we either can get frustrated or we can be fruitful through the testing. And we need to say, God, help me. Give me a glimpse. Give me a little shadow of something. You ever pray that? I pray that. Say, God, just give me something to hang on in this situation. Just give me a, throw me a crumb, God, a little insight here to help me through this. And so we need to see it through the spiritual Eyes of the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. Acts nine fifteen. Just again, by way of reminder, remember in Acts nine fifteen, the Lord told Paul that uh, He said, "Go for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel." So, part of Paul's mission is he was going to speak the gospel before the Gentiles, those are non-Jews. He was going to speak before kings and leaders, as well as his own countrymen, the children of Israel. But there's something that also God says in Acts twenty-three eleven. The Lord told Paul uh, in this vision while he was in jail, he said, take courage, Paul, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also where. Now how Paul got there, probably he would have rather taken the red-eye ship yeah, I don't even think they had that. But he would have rather just gone a direct route to Rome and avoided all this stuff. But God was all, and, and this, is not, this is part of this big picture to keep in mind, is that God is always at work in our life. Always at work. Even when we don't see it, when we don't understand it, God is never sleeping on the job. He's always at work. And what we see, as, as we saw in that Wednesday night series with Tony Evans, as we encounter the detours, God is the God of the detours. He's in the detours. And so we see that, and that helps us to say, God, how do I take this situation, how do I take this, this thing that I'm walking through and move it from frustration to to fruitfulness. And so that's the lesson. How do we see these things from God's perspective? Now, a couple of things to keep in mind is that Satan always has a plot, doesn't he? That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we should not be outwitted by, by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We're to be knowledgeable of these things. Uh, And so Satan's plot is always to thwart the purposes of God. But because Satan is not sovereign, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipro, all those big words you can throw around. But in other words, he's not God. Remember, he's created. He He has limitations. And even those limitations are determined by God himself, according to Job. And so the enemy of our souls is not passive. He is always seeking to to disrupt and to thwart. And in this case with Paul, he used these angry Jewish leaders to try to come against the Apostle Paul. Remember, they were scheming, lying, conniving, and they just wanted... Imagine this. They were wanting to just get him on the road and they were going to assassinate him. Now, that shouldn't have surprised Paul because Paul's history, as you know was one who did some really horrible things before when he was known as Saul, and he did them all under the pretext of thinking that he was following God's will. So he gets this dark, disturbed mindset of where they're, where they're coming from, but also God is using these, uh, these Romans, these unbelieving uh, Roman officials and Felix and Festus, even though Festus may seem to be kind of benign and, and uh, may not seem to be as lethal, but yet... Uh, if Paul had been had taken, or if uh, he had taken that suggestion to release Paul, what would have happened? As we looked at verse three of chapter twenty-five, he would have been ambushed on the road. But but none of these enemies, and none of your enemies, are any match for God's sovereignty and God's direction in our life. Remember this: if you are serving God in any capacity, if you are. Desiring to follow Christ in your life, you have a target on your back. The enemy does not want you to be fruitful, he does not want you to be influential, he wants you to be crashing and burning, he wants you to be a disaster and take as many lives with you as possible. That's he's always up to that scheme. We're not ignorant of his schemes and his devices, and he will oppose you either subtly through compromising or through open hostility. That's his plotting. But the good news is is his plotting is nothing compared to God's protection. And that's the thing that we want to, as we kind of circle, circle the runway a little bit here as we move towards this passage, we want to see that God is protecting Paul. Because God had made a promise in Paul's life, didn't he? God had had given a word to Paul. So, as I said, is that God is working behind the scenes to protect and use his servants according and for his purpose. Uh, I I mentioned, um, in, uh, or maybe I didn't, but Acts 6, 10 through 11, notice what it says. And notice how it puts these two things together. Uh, This is Paul writing this. Finally, be strong in what? Are we going to get there? Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. Do I not have it? There we go. Speak, and it will appear. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in what? Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's usually sometimes not our first go-to, is it? It's usually... What can I do? How does this work? You know, what, I need to call my network. I need to get on, was it LinkedIn? I need to get all. you know, I need to... But be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And then it says there's a responsibility of an action that we have to take. It says now, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able, may be able to stand against, and notice how the ESV says, the schemes of the devil. God protects his people through providential power, his providential power directing and controlling even those who oppose him. I was thinking about when Jesus, and I don't think, the, I don't have the reference, but you'll hopefully recall it. In John 19, Jesus is having a dialogue with the Roman governor of Judea back then, Pontius Pilate. And you remember, uh, and I'll just read it here for you Pilate said to him, uh, when jesus wouldn 't answer pilate 's questions, and Pilate says this don't you know who you 're talking to don't you know that I have the power to set you free or to put you to death this don't you know who I am and I love what Jesus says. you remember what Jesus said Jesus answered listen to what he says you could have no power at all against me unless... Say unless. Unless it had been given to you from above. I love that. Pilate, don't you know who I am? You're nothing. You can do nothing unless my Father has allowed you and has given you whatever you're going to do. You're powerless, Mr. Pilate. And so God is working... By the scenes. We've talked about this and it bears repeating and reminding ourselves when we talk about providence, the providence of God, uh, providence is that the, the the reminder is that God is not an absentee deity. He is not an absentee God. He is actively, willingly working in his creation. Let's say it this way is that God has not abandoned the world he created. But rather, he is working within that creation to manage all things according to the counsel of his will. That's why we talk about providence. He's not, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin and some of those founding fathers. They are what are called deists, meaning they believed in God. They believed in natural law. But they did not necessarily believe in a personal God that was directly involved in the affairs of human beings in our lives. They tipped the hat that there was this creator, and then that creator has gone on vacation. He really just wound the clock up, so to speak, and has left us to ourselves. That is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches a God who made us, who created us, and is intimately acquainted with every facet of our lives and is designing all things to work out. according to the purposes and counsel of His will. That is comforting to me. If I believed that I was just a, a, a blob of clay bouncing around randomly in the universe and there was no intentionality and purpose, yes, even in the tough moments of my life, that if I somehow, whether I understood it or not, that I still as a backdrop default say that I believe that God is holy, I believe that God is just, I believe that God is good, and I believe that even in this, even though I may not get it, I may never see it, maybe my grandchildren will see it, maybe they'll put two and two together, but if not, I trust God with my life, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Death. So always the challenge that James, when he said to count it all joy, is do you trust God? See, we trust God when we've we got a good job, bills are paid, food's in the fridge, things are going well, our kids are behaving, all those things. We trust God, and we believe we're in God's will, but the moment something changes, what happens? It's kind of like, You know, kids, somebody, you know, with a flower, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That roller coaster of God is worthy and and can be worshipped and praised when things are good in my life. But the minute that changes, I don't trust him. What's he doing with my life? How dare he interfere in my life, right? Well, I'll nod my head because that's I, that's that's me, that's that's my na- that's human nature, isn't it? Think about how God works some things out in Paul's life. Think about just just listen and of the if you just were to go back a few chapters of how God used past events leading up to where Paul is right now in Acts twenty-five. God used Paul's love for his people and his strong desire. To unify Gentile and Jewish believers of the church and bring him to jerusalem he he was that 's what brought him to Jerusalem. He used the Council of the Jerusalem leaders of the church, misguided though it had been that 's led Paul in chapter twenty one He went into the temple to worship and also in chapter twenty one uh, God brought uh, along the Jews from Asia, those folks in Ephesus that created that mob that opposed him in chapter twenty one uh, God used uh, Lysias, who was the commander, the tribune, to rescue Paul from angry mob and protect him from certain death. In chapter 23, 16, something we didn't talk about, but uh, God used Paul's nephew overhearing about a plot to kill him to bring that to the attention and get Paul into safety. God even used this crooked Felix... In chapter 24, to uh, keep Paul kind of on ice for two years until now this uh, new leader, Festus, came to town that would eventually say, you know what? Uh, You want to go to Rome? You're going to Rome. God was in all the details. Even though it wasn't something Paul was planning, the evil planners, the evil schemers, God's plan was moving forward. And so the key that we need to keep in mind... Is God help me to see my circumstances, though they seem frustrating, confusing, but help me see them from your sovereign, providential perspective, and not my human perspective. Paul's perspective, he was hemmed in, he was in chains, he was in jail. But from God's perspective, God was Paul was right where God wanted him, and God was setting him up to fulfill ultimately where Paul would be taken where he would bear witness for the gospel. And so I found this to be true. I don't like it, but it's true, is that sometimes the greatest opportunities for God's kingdom that God gives us come disguised as frustrating or confusing circumstances that we find ourselves in chains, figuratively, where we seem to be restricted from reaching our purpose, our goals, but if we see those circumstances from human eyes instead of saying, God, help me to see them from your eyes because I want to be fruitful in the midst of this moment. Help me to be fruitful and not frustrated. So with that, look with me at four very quick practical applications from Acts 25 as how the title of the message today is How, how to Stand Strong Under God's protection. How do we stand strong? We're under God's protection. Every believer is under God's protection. But how do we stand strong? Because sometimes I'm—I I should title this "Weak Need Under God's Protection," "Fallen Out Under God's Protection." But God, I want to stand strong under Your protection. Number one, these are these are really just practical things. Number one, be authentic. Remember what Paul said in Acts 24 16? Be authentic. He said, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. In chapter 25 8, we read that earlier. He said, Look, I've not committed any offense. I've not broken any law. I'm innocent of the charges. In other words, Paul could calmly state the truth because he was authentic. He was real. He had a clear conscience. He wasn't. He wasn't playing some dual game of personality where he was making sure he paid off the right people and he was conniving and scheming. He could stand before this this powerful Roman official and say, look, I am innocent. My conscience is clear. He was an authentic man. And you know what sometimes gets us into... Trouble is when we are conniving and scheming or trying to manipulate a situation and we try to get ourselves involved in something instead of trusting God to work it out and it gets us tripped up, don't we? Well, I know I said that and I shouldn't have said that, but the reason I said that was because I thought you said this and that. Sound familiar? Right? And Paul could have the peace of God. Colossians 3.15 says... Let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called to in one body, do what? Rule your hearts. One paraphrase says, let the peace of God stand guard over your hearts. You see, when you're living authentically before God and you don't have this, any, any hidden issues, I'm not saying you're sinless or perfect, don't get me wrong, but when your conscience is clear that you have dealt with a person or you've dealt with a situation honestly and forthrightly, you've been authentic, then you can stand and truly say, "Look, I'm innocent here. I'm innocent here." I think it was uh, was it in First Peter, Second Peter, where Peter's talking about suffering, and he says, "Look, if you suffer, I'm paraphrasing. If you if you suffer because you committed some crimes and you're a crook, well, you get what you deserved. But when you suffer and you are innocent before God and innocent before man, you're suffering for the gospel." He said, that's something that, that glorifies God. But you're not glorifying God because you broke the law and you get thrown in jail because you were scheming and conniving and, you know, not paying your taxes and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, we'll just leave it at that, all right? And I have no knowledge of anything, so whatever you do is before you and the Lord, all right? Uh, I was thinking also as, about this too, is that, uh, you know, as, as, in a, as a pastor, this may shock you, but in 35 years of, of ministry, uh, there has been times when people have not always understood or agreed with my views. I know. I, I, I just, I just <laughs> you know, and uh, what are you laughing at? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. And there have been probably more times than I care to remember When I have responded in a fleshly way, in a way that I had to kind of retreat and fix, right? But there have been times in which decisions uh, have been made and and it may not always been uh, understood by this person or whatever. And because I had the peace of God, then I could really just trust God in that situation, and when you stand and say, "Look, I have the peace of God," not that I've just, you know, I've got this false sense because I want to do this and I've just talked myself. But when I really have the peace of God, because you know, if you're a Christian, you know when you got the peace of God in a situation. Because there's been things that you said, "Ah, this is the line. This is I'm not. I'm not budging." Right, and you're like, "Well, okay, maybe a little bit here, but." But when you sometimes have acted in a way and you know, man, God has a way of putting his finger on your life and saying, That's not right. You better fix that. You didn't you didn't handle that right, you didn't respond right. But then there are times when you know, you know that you responded in a in a godly way. And there may have been consequences. You heard me quote, and I don't know if it was original with him, but I always hear in fact this morning when he was on briefly getting ready for church Charles Stanley said always obey God and leave the consequences to him always do the right thing always do the right thing because if you're slipping and sliding and jiving guess what God can't use that when we don't when we're not living authentic clean conscience lives before him and before others God has a mess he has to deal with but when we are authentic before God, like Paul said, and authentic with others, then we can stand under His protection freely, maintaining an authentic heart. Notice, secondly, it's not just be authentic, but be aware. Be aware of what? Be aware of God in the midst of these trials. Be aware of God, of who He is, That if you know the sovereign God, if you know the nature of God, if you know who God is, then you can trust Him to defend and protect according to His purpose. That when I know God and I know His character, I might not know all the answers and all the pieces of this, but as I said earlier, I know God and I know that God's purposes and God's ways, the Bible says, are higher than my ways. God is, is operating at an entirely different operational level than Tim Campbell. And God has way more going on in his agenda that he's developing in my life and your life than just what, as I said, what I see in front of me. God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, that's not just some theological hobby horse. It is a, it is a, re, it is a precious reality that should bring comfort to every believer. For example, if you pray, if you pray, whether you're on your knees, in your bed, what, if you pray, guess what? Whether you recognize, you, you are acknowledging the sovereignty of God every time you pray. Because what are you doing? You're saying, God, I need you to do something that is humanly impossible, I cannot do, God. Who created the heavens and the earth, God, I need you to do this. Now, if God is not sovereign, you just kind of, you know, kind of just throwing your requests up to the wind and hoping something happens. So, as Christians, and we'll talk about a little bit about this this week when we talk about the nature of God in our uh, Wednesday night study. It is a non-negotiable. It is, it is the woof and fabric of the act, the very character and nature of who, of who God is. If you've got a God who's learning stuff like you, then guess what? You have a God made in your own image. You don't have a God that Scripture identifies. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. So when we talk about be aware, be aware in your circumstance, be aware of who God is. I love this, uh, and this is part of a much larger quote, but I just do it maybe to expose you a little bit and investigate. R.C. Sproul, uh, much longer, but he said this, and I just have part of it on the screen. When we talk about God's sovereignty, it's God's control over all things, God's control over creation, His creation He made. He said, if there is one molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, what I like to call one maverick molecule, then the practical implication for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise God has made to His people will come to pass. He goes on to say, and I don't have it on the screen, if we have one maverick molecule running loose out there, we have no assurance whatsoever that it's that single molecule that might be the grain of sand to frustrate the machinery of God's eternal plan. Do you get what he's saying? That if God is either God over everything or he is God over everything, nada nothing Romans 8:28 and we know that some things is that what it says all things God you mean all 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 things do what work together work together Things that generationally you don't even know about. Things that might have been done generations ago that God in His providential, sovereign direction of your life has worked together in the here and now because God is working all things together for what? For the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Little boy was on a plane one day that was experiencing violent turbulence. The plane was going up and down. Anybody ever been on a plane like that? It's amazing how close we get to the Lord on those moments, right? I'll never get in this tube again. You know, I just the plane was going up and down, all over the place, bouncing around. The lady sitting next to the little boy. Was terrified, and she couldn't understand why the little boy was happily playing and having fun. You ever been on a plane where it's bouncing around and there's a kid screaming? Why is that so unnerving? You just... Oh, anyway. But he's not crying and screaming. He's just playing and having fun. And after a while of observing him, she just couldn't stand it, little anymore. And she said, "Little boy, please stop." Stop having so much fun. How can you have so much fun when the plane is going through all this? And the little boy put his hand on the lady's lap and said, Lady, my daddy is the pilot. You see, when you know who's in control of your life, it has a different way that you view the ups and downs. The Bible says, Psalm 135, verse 6, The Lord does whatever he pleases in earth. In heaven and on earth, in the sea and then all the depths, he does whatever he pleases. Job forty-two verse two. I know, Job said, and boy, that he had to get to chapter forty-two to say this. And if you know the book of Job, but he got there, he got there. But he got chapter forty-two. He said, "I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted." In Colossians one seventeen, that he. Christ is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. What a comforting truth. Thirdly, we need to be authentic, be aware, but thirdly, be available. What do we mean by be available? If we have received the message of grace from Christ and the cross, then that means that every circumstance we are in, no matter how frustrating, no matter how challenging that we need to see that it is an opportunity to glorify christ and demonstrate the grace of god to others but see we don't want that we don't like that because it's like this is about me jesus i'm not interested in anybody else i don't want to be anybody's life lesson hello You want to be, you know, we're going to go through this, Colleen. You're going to be somebody's life lesson. Uh, No, use Sandy, not me. She likes life lessons. (laughs) But see, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. And so that means that Paul could have been saying, not again, I don't want to do this. I've, I've got to put up with these same people. I've got to have these same enemies. Why, God? Am I going through this all over again? He would have missed the opportunity to bear witness for Christ and to be used of how God was doing things in his life that Paul couldn't even quite grasp or understand, glorifying him in the midst of hardship. I was thinking about, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you ever have... Uh, uh, bought a diamond ever, or you just pass through, or looking uh, if you're in the jewelry store or something. Oftentimes, what do they do if they want to? If you want them to, uh, if they want to really sell you on the brilliance of that diamond, you know what they put that diamond on? They don't put it on the glass counter. You know what they do is they roll out that black velvet, and then they put that diamond on that black velvet. And what is that black? What is that diamond? it sparkles and it shines against what? Against the backdrop of that dark velvet. When does the light and glory of Jesus shine the brightest and sparkle the brightest against the backdrop of dark situations, of things that come into our life, that the light of His glory and grace shines the brightest? Paul and Silas. Remember those guys? They were in jail. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, here they are chained up in jail. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were doing what? Singing hymns to God. And what what was going on around them? The prisoners were doing what? They were listening to him. People listen and watch other believers and what you go through. They're observing. You talk a big game, but now you're in a tough situation. How, how's your God going to, how's that work out now? Philippians 1.12, I quoted a lot. Paul in jail, in jail when he wrote the church at Philippi, said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him, he's, he's in chains, he's in jail. He says, what has happened to me has actually done what? advance the gospel. It's like Paul saying, you know what? My life, when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, I became a slave to Jesus. And a slave has no agenda, except whatever his master says is the agenda for that day. I'm a slave. That's what doulos means. You know, we English interpreters use it as servant, kind of like Mr. French, you know, he's a servant. Uh, or a waiter. No, no we're not waiters and no we are slaves. That's what doulos in the Greek means. When it talks about bond servant it literally means slave, but for obvious reasons in our culture that we you know, we recoil at that word, but that's literally what it means. A slave for Christ. And when we become slaves for Christ, that means that if God's agenda says that Tim Campbell is going to walk through this season in order for this, 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 this to take place for my kingdom purposes. Well, Tim Campbell signed on to a blank piece of paper and I'm filling in the agenda for his life. He belongs to me and so this is part of the program because I am here to do what the master wants. Does that mean it's fun? It's always exciting? No. But that's, that's what we signed up for, right? Right? At least some of us. (laughs) You have military men out here. You don't go in when you say, all right, now here's my agenda of what I want. They'll smile, pat you on the back, till you sign on that dotted line, and you realize you belong to Uncle Sam, and you're going to go where Uncle Sam goes, and you're going to eat what Uncle Sam tells you to eat. And you're going to do a lot of things when Uncle Sam tells you what you're going to do, how long you're going to do it, right? Because you are not your own. How much in a more so way do we belong to King Jesus? And last, be authentic, be aware, be available, and be absolute. What do I mean by absolute? Absolute in the dictionary means to... One of the definitions is to have no restrictions. No exceptions. To be absolute is is independent of arbitrary standards. If we follow Christ who laid down His life for us, then we should be committed to an absolute commitment... For truth, that means a willingness to pay any price, go any place, a commitment to him without compromise. Without compromise. Paul, as I said, did not consider his life dear to himself. In Acts 20, verse 24, he said, But I consider my life of no value to myself. It isn't that he had self-esteem issues. It's just that he had reached where his life was expendable... For the purposes of the king and the kingdom agenda, he said, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to do what? To finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus and to testify of God's, the gospel of God's grace. How do you stand? How are you absolute in your commitment to God and his word and his standard? It means that you live a life by grace, the best by the empowering of the Spirit that you live a life of trust and no compromise to the Word of God. Because the minute you begin to compromise and fudge and change, then no longer you, you have changed the standard. You are not absolute in your commitment because you've changed and now you're operating by a different standard. Life comes at us fast and furious and temptations come at us for the most unlikely places, but if we say, I am absolutely committed to stand on God's Word, I'm absolutely committed to stand under His protective hand according to His Word that has been revealed to us, then I know that God will take care of the rest. I know that God can handle the rest. So this morning, let me ask you, where are you at today? What are you facing? I don't know. I know some things going on in people's lives, but there's probably things that are going on I know nothing about. Most people wouldn't know anything about. Are you standing? You're in God's protection as a believer, but are you standing? Are you standing for God? Be reminded that we are need, we need to be authentic. We need to be authentic. We need to be aware. Be aware that God is in control, that God is sovereign. Be aware. Be available. Say, God I know it's not all about me. I know, don't let me miss a way and a, a, that, that, God, this can be an opportunity. God, for my life, what I'm walking through, God, that you can glorify yourself in another person. Be available, but be absolute, no compromise, no change, because God's word is truth, and if we begin to change truth and we begin to build a foundation upon sand instead of building upon that solid Rock of Christ. Upon this rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Be absolute. I didn't have a, a $100 bill handy. Sherry has not given me my allowance this week. But I thought if I had a $100 bill and uh, I were to ask a show of hands and said, I'm going to give away this $100 bill. Who wants this $100 bill? Now, I know some of you just have a great humility, but I venture to say a majority of you would have your hand jacked up. You'd be maybe some of you standing on a chair. That's going to pay that bill this week. And uh, I said, but if I took that $100 bill, brand new, crisp, newly minted, not in my house, but newly minted, U.S. Treasury Um, And I just wadded up, I crinkled it up, and then I said, how many of you now want this $100 bill? I bet just about everybody again, right? And I took that crinkled $100 bill, and I threw it on the ground, and I stepped on it, I stamped on it, I put my shoe, my dirty shoe, all over it, and then I picked it up again, and I said, now how many of you want this $100 bill? Still takers, right? Still takers. You see, here's the deal. Even though that $100 bill had been a lot, been through a lot, it still had value. Even though you and I get wadded up, stepped on, trampled on, dirty, messed up, guess what? Our value and our worth before God who God says we are, transcends the stuff that we go through. And even the stuff that mars and beats us up along the way, our value is who God says you are. Our value is who God says I am. And that my value and my worth is according to Him. And that I have the promise that I know that God is for me who can be against me? And yes, I'll walk through those valleys. Yes, I'll stand against some pretty rough folks that'll challenge and be angry and however you want to face it, whatever those are. You live this life. You will walk through many valleys. As I've said, I think the first message I preached here, you're either in a valley, you're getting ready to go through a valley, or you're coming out of one. That's life in five seconds, right? And you know what a valley metaphor is. That's the suffering, the trials. Be real. Be aware of God. Be available because we belong to Jesus. But don't, 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 don't give up on what God has revealed about himself to us. No compromise. That God, I stand on your word and a clean conscience, I stand to do the right thing. I might lose my job. I might lose my friends. But I'm going to stand on truth. I'm going to do the right thing according to you. And I'll leave all the other consequences into your hands. Because I know, even though I might be trampled on and dirty and wadded up and messed up, guess what? I am of eternal value to you. And that does not change. That does not change.